You know, Jay, Strong Guy seems like a weird character to drop into the diabolical end of the Marvel Universe. You say that now, Miles, but wait till he ends up Supreme Lord of Hell. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 429 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a bit of silliness. That's right, this week we are dropping out of the main narrative and taking a look at two issues of X-Men Unlimited. Which, true uh, to its title, is, is limited by nothing, not continuity, not restraint. No, that's not true. That's actually not true at all. Um, I mean, it is true that we're looking at X-Men Unlimited. We are, we are. Yeah, X-Men Unlimited, it's always been a strange X-comic. Uh, it's kind of struggled for uh, a statement of purpose at times. Sometimes it's been smaller stories that explain a bit of continuity or just focus on a smaller number of characters or just like a random X-Men or X-Factor or whatever story that could have just as easily been an annual. We're covering number 20 and 21 today, and I actually want to uh, read something here from the beginning of number 21. Around this time, a lot of comics were adding uh, preface pages. I don't know, Jay, what would you call that? Where you have, like, the recap and you list the characters and that sort of thing? I mean, I'd call it a recap page or a title page. Okay, well, well, that. We're seeing that be a little more codified these days. We've seen that in other titles as well. And in X-Men Unlimited, uh, number 21 opens with a page talking about all the characters who are in the issue and also says... With unlimited power and unlimited courage, each X-Man has their own story to tell. They live and fight together as X-Men, but the challenges they face as individuals are sometimes the most unlimited adventures of all. And as tortured as that description is... And you can really hear the screams. Uh, which I still love. I mean, the, the description, not the screams. Uh, I think it's a good statement of purpose. The idea is that X-Men Unlimited should focus on individual characters. Maybe characters that in a bunch of team books tend not to get the spotlight. Neither of these issues actually do that. They're, they're about groups of characters. But still, I like that. I like the idea of X-Men Unlimited being the stories that would sort of be too specific for one of the main comics. Or too offbeat. I think sometimes X-Men Unlimited stories read as basically fill-in issues. Like, they would, they would be one-off fill-ins if they were in the main comic. Sometimes they're very much their own animal. Uh, these, I think, feel a little bit more like fill-ins than most. But that's not a bad thing in and of itself. They're both very good one-shots. Yeah, there's a big difference between fill-ins and fill-er. And certainly, some of X-Men Unlimited is just straight-up filler. I've been reading ahead to try to get a feel for what we should and shouldn't cover, and there are definitely some issues that I assure you, listeners, you will miss nothing by us not covering. And that brings us to the issues we are going to cover, starting with X-Men Unlimited number 20, Where the Wild Things Were. This issue is written by Joseph Harris, penciled by L.A. Garza, inked by Cabin Boy, Andrew Papoy, and Rob Lee, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings in Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. Uh, L.A. Garza, Alejandro Garza, uh, he did that horror story Generation X issue, number 41, where, like, Jubilee had the nightmare about all the slasher movie monsters killing everyone in the mansion— I, yeah, I really like Ali Garza's art. The characters, 
I have a lot more personality. Like, they're less sort of generically pretty or generically monstery. Like, they all look very individual. I especially love the way he draws Husk. Like, Husk always runs the risk of just looking like boring blonde girl to the point where sometimes it's hard to tell her and Emma Frost apart. Uh, and that's not the case at all here. She's, like, all freckly and kind of gawky and wears this, like, hippie 90s fashion that was very much a thing that if you grew up in the 90s, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you don't. Yeah, his people are very cartoonish and, by extension, very expressive. Yeah, but not, like, unrealistically drawn, just sort of uh, a little a little caricatured, maybe. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, their proportions are vaguely human. I mean, yes, they are They are identifiable as human. I, I wouldn't—I still wouldn't call the art style realistic. I guess what I mean is that you have somebody like Chris Pacello, and his character's physical forms can be extremely exaggerated, and we're not seeing that here. We're just seeing, like, the details, the faces, the general uh, thinness or fatness or whatever. So, their physical forms? Yes, but but less so is my point. Anyway, this is, uh, as you can tell by me mentioning Husk, a Generation X story— and normally we do a little recap, but all you really need to know is that Gen X are the current young X-Men team. They're going to the Xavier School in Snow Valley, Massachusetts, which is headmastered by Banshee and the White Queen. And um, they have adventures, some of which are super and some of which are just sort of soap opera-y. So in that regard, they're, they're pretty much just young X-Men. But we don't start with Generation X, we start in the woods of Massachusetts, where some rough-looking fellas are roasting their raw meat dinner over a fire. Well, it's not raw meat once they roast it. Well, it, it starts as raw meat. Um, maybe it's a really ineffective fire, maybe the fire is just phoning it in, it's just going, eh, I'm a fire, and sort of waving its fire fingers, maybe it's just red construction paper. Aw, little bits of red cellophane and Christmas lights. Yeah, or it's like, uh, Calcifer from Howl's Moving Castle when he doesn't have a lot of fuel. Or when he's petulant. Or when he's petulant. Uh, anyway, none of that's the case. The point is that they're roasting their dinner, and they're looking up at the stars, which remind them of their home, which is Asgard. Because, um, yeah, yeah, these are actually three rock trolls named Chambliss, Nettles, and Munson. And they're refugees from Asgard, because at this point, it's been having some problems. Remember, we are still around the time when a lot of the Avengers were presumed dead, but were in fact off in the Heroes Reborn universe. So uh. Thor wasn't around, and Asgard got pretty messed up. The Dark God showed up, and they captured a bunch of God and they, gods, and they destroyed a bunch of stuff. It's, it's a bad scene. This is distinct from the time that Asgard crashed in Oklahoma. It just sort of appeared in Oklahoma, and then it hovered when it turned out they didn't have a permit to be on the land. Oh, that's a good point. It didn't crash, it hovered. I, my, my error there. It did crash during the siege crossover. Uh, it was a whole thing. My point is, Oklahoma. Yes, yes, Oklahoma. Where the wind goes, Asgard something Asgard. So, rock trolls, right. So, you know, you hear about elves, you hear about that Aesir and the Vanir. Rock trolls are sort of, uh, like medium-sized giants with uh, earthy-colored skin who tend to be very brutal and murdery. Uh, they mostly live underground in something called the Realm Below, below Asgard. Nice prosaic name. The most notable rock troll is longtime Thor villain Ulick. Heh <laughs> Ulick. Yep. Anyway, if you want to hear a whole lot of Asgardian nonsense, I did a limited series podcast back in 2017 with Elizabeth Alley called Thor the Lightning and the Storm, where we went through uh, Walter Simonson's whole Thor run, and um, I'm really proud of it, so you can listen to it if you want. Or you can just keep listening to this, which is also great. So we start with the trolls 
scrambling to douse their fire and hide because someone is coming and they are trying to conceal their presence here. They do not want to be found. But it's just a little girl, a cute little blonde girl in overalls named Hannah, who's looking for her dog, Maxie. Aww. Um, except, yeah, less cute is, is Chambliss, who whispers from the shadows. And why doesn't Maxie answer, eh? Sorry, Maxie. <laughs> and he, yeah, looks down at a shredded dog collar by the fire, implying that they have eaten Maxie. That they were just eating Maxie, that that raw meat was raw Maxie, being ineffectively heated by construction paper fire. Like, at least have the respect to actually roast him, come on. Jeez. But that's not the only stranger in the woods, because one of the rock trolls, Munson, comes back with someone in a sack who might get them home, back to Asgard. It's a teenage girl. It is specifically the aforementioned, well-drawn husk, Paige Guthrie. Why has a rock troll absconded with Paige Guthrie? Well, we'll get to that, but the short version is Munson thinks that Paige is magic. And he figures if someone is magic, they could send them to another one of the nine realms. Rock trolls are not really known for their intelligence or deductive abilities. Okay, when you say he thinks Paige is magic, you mean lowercase magic with a C, not uppercase magic with a K. Uh, correct. He is unfamiliar with Ilyana Rasputin, or Amanda Sefton, or Limbo, or Belasco. I mean, he's probably at least passingly familiar with Ilyana Rasputin. I mean, she's been she's been to Asgard. Yeah, only briefly, though, and that was a long time ago. But anyway, Husk points out, while she does have powers, they're not really very relevant. She just rips the skin off of her face to reveal another face underneath. There's a great panel of Nettles looking really confused while holding up, like, a ripped-off face's worth of skin, saying, We don't see what's so magic about skin, Munson. Feels... Eh, it could be worse. It could be the new 52 Joker that cut off his face and then strapped it back on. I will never get that image out of my head. Ew. Yeah, yeah, new 52 is, was kind of edgelordy. Yeah, that's just gratuitous. Right? So you'd asked why initially they noticed Husk being magic. So let's flash back to the 1970s. I mean, to like earlier that day. In the 1970s. Yes, earlier that day in the 1970s. Time flows funky in the Marvel Universe. We've talked about that. No, it's earlier that day in, in 1998, presumably. In theory, 98. Uh, hence the fashion that Husk and everyone else are, are wearing. Indeed. But the characters earlier that day were all at the Snow Valley Harvest Festival, which is basically just like one of your standard carnivals with your rides and your kettle corn and your elephant ears and that sort of thing. Man, I think the last fair that I went to was probably the Big E, which is, is a... um. New England agricultural, like, state festival. It's, it's, they've got little, little models of each, each state's capital building, and you wander through them and get, like, free food. That, that actually sounds delightfully specific. I, I would do It's very crowded. It's very, very, very crowded. Well, that's maybe a little less appealing, but, but it still sounds fun. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been to a fair, too. But here, the characters are just being their goofy teenage selves. Sink and Skin are just being bros together and kind of being dumbasses. Jubilee is growing it up with them because between the writer and the artist, uh, she's very much portrayed as a, t as a tomboy here, just wanting to be one of the guys dressing in, like, oversized men's clothing and a big hat covering most of her hair. I actually really like Jubilee's look in this art style. Is that Wolverine's cowboy hat? 
Uh, it is not. No, it's just like a toboggan hat. Uh, Wolverine's okay. cowboy hat. She had gotten back by this point from the weird little thief that was the daughter of the cop. But she's not wearing it now. Yeah, that's fair. I wouldn't want to risk Wolverine's cowboy hat at a fair either. No, seriously. Be carried off by an eagle or something. Eagles are constantly circling fairs, looking for hats. Speaking of fashion, uh, Sink is wearing a sh- shirt that says, Stop Hatin'. You know, that is a statement that holds up as well in 2023 as it did in 1998. Stop Hatin'. I initially read his shirt as Stop Hatin, like Satin, because it's just H-A-T-I-N, there isn't an apostrophe. And, um... Had had a moment of, of, am I missing some kind of cultural reference before I realized that, no, no, it means stop hating. I'm just very tired. Or maybe there was a missing second T, and it was, in fact, stop hatting, and that's why Jubilee isn't wearing the cowboy hat, because she was worried that Sink would disapprove. Uh, Husk is being earnest and genuinely liking the whole thing, but trying to be cool by not talking about how much she likes it, which I gotta say, I sympathize always with you, Paige Guthrie. So they, they... They intend to stand in line for bumper cars, but accidentally end up in the sideshow where Sink confirms via his powers that that none of the people um, on exhibit are are in fact mutants. Uh, They do have some impressive names, though. We have Fat Man, which whatever, but then Stickman O, Beard Lady O, and Frogman O. Have they been watching Thundercats? Now, it's worth pausing here to say that this is not an evil carnival. Because it's the Marvel Universe, and so odds are really good that any given carnival is being run by supervillains. This one, if it is, is being run by supervillains who are committed enough to the bit that they're just running a carnival. Oh, I love that idea. Like, you have your disguise to infiltrate the world of man, but you just keep doing it? You know, come to think of it, there was an evil carnival story where that was the case, where the Skrulls had turned into various carnival characters, and they just kept being carnival characters for the most part, up until the culmination of their plan years later. That's a very Skrull move. It is a very scroll move. At least I didn't get turned into hamburger. That was a that was a different story. So as all of this is going on, we see Hannah earlier in the day losing her dog Maxie because Maxie has caught the scent of a nearby troll hiding in the woods. And Maxie runs off after the troll, Hannah runs after Maxie, and the chaos of this causes the sleeping Ferris wheel operator to accidentally break the controls, which sends the wheel off of its uh, hub and just rolling through the carnival. Jubilee, by the way, is on this Ferris wheel. She wanted to go, but nobody wanted to go with her, so it's just her and, like, the teddy bears that she and Sink won in a carnival game. And so she's, like, just climbing up the wheel, trying to stay on top of it as it rolls madly. Gen X is ineffectually trying to stop it, which uh, has the second purpose of showing us what all their powers are, in case we're not familiar with the character. This is, after all, X-Men Unlimited, not Generation X, and it is very, very silly, and I kind of love it. That is a really, really damn flimsy set of controls. Uh, it's it's true. Uh, I, I feel like when you're dealing with something as dangerous as a Ferris wheel, especially as dangerous as a Ferris wheel in the Marvel Universe, where, as we know, carnivals are just waiting to explode and or collapse and or fall on people, like, you know, maybe make it out of something other than a few toothpicks taped together. Yeah, it really looks like it's just a dowel. You can do better than dowels, Ferris wheel operator. Come on, Snow Valley. At least get, like, a crowbar or something. Jam it into the switch. Or or two dowels. You could tape them together. They're stronger that way. It was a whole thing in Rome. Ooh, I've done that for protest signs. See? See? You know. I do know. I would be a better Ferris wheel operator than that Ferris wheel operator, and that's saying something, given that I have no idea how to operate a Ferris wheel. 
Well, you know, if this podcast ever falls through, then, hey, you have a great career waiting for you in Ferris wheel operation. Do I, though? I feel like the competition is stiffer than this fictional dude. Stiffer than that dowel, anyway. Most things are. Anyway, as all of this is going on, as the characters are just pratfalling all over each other before M finally deigns to swoop in and uh, just fly Jubilee out of the thing, because of course she waited until the last minute because it's funnier that way. And of course Jubilee was the only passenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Husk is yoinked out of the chaos by one of the trolls. Again, one of the trolls that saw her use her powers and figured, she was magic, she can take us home. And I appreciate that the book remembers, you know, young mutant characters have dealt with Asgardian shit before, like Cannonball, Husk's older brother, was in Asgard for quite a while and fought some trolls. As the narration tells us, though. Different trolls, different team, different Guthrie. And this different Guthrie back in the present is bored as shit. She's trying to play tic-tac-toe with Nettles while she waits for the other two to kidnap a more useful member of her team. But despite her best efforts, uh, Nettles cannot grasp even the most basic fundamentals of tic-tac-toe strategy. Like, Husk feels so bad, but she's Paige Guthrie, so she refuses to let him win because that wouldn't be fair either, and she really, really believes in rules. Oh, Paige... Nettles is great. He's very sweet. He is he is the nice troll. He keeps calling her Miss Page. It's adorable. But the other trolls head to the school to see if maybe there's another mutant teen who's more useful than Husk is, or who at least can be used as leverage to force to force Husk to use her theoretical magic to return them to Asgard. And uh, they grab Jubilee, but just as they do, Husk and Nettles show up because Husk is sick of this nonsense, and Nettles decides he just wants to help her because he's a very sweet troll. There's no time for negotiation, though, because an angry mob has gathered outside, as angry mobs tend to do. Like, seriously, does everybody just have a bunch of torches sitting by their front doors for, like, Tuesday night or whatever? I guess it's better than buying a bunch of Walmart tiki torches and showing up at a racist rally. I mean, I was I was gonna say, Home Depot does sell torches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yes, Angry Mob, um, they have heard tales from Hannah the little girl that there are monsters who may be captured Maxie, and they're maybe holding up here in the mutant school, which is actually terrifying to Generation X. This is a nightmare to any mutant that an Angry Mob will gather and try to kill them. Yeah, and they're not sure what to do, because on one hand, the trolls are kind of not their problem. On the other hand... There are members of the team who aren't human passing. Exactly. But uh, not everyone's willing to team up. Uh, Munson and Chambliss just run the hell away and hide in a closet. And there is this great Looney Tunes series of three panels of just their eyes visible in the dark as they're talking to each other and wondering what's poking them. They each think it's the other one. And they run out screaming and we just see a scowling penance. You know, the red girl who's made of sharp edges just staring out at them just with this... I wish... I wish podcasting were not a purely audio medium. I just want to show you this face right now, listeners. I guess we'll put it in the visual companion. I love that Penance just happened to be hanging out in the back of a closet. Yeah, there's no explanation. She is only in this one panel in the entire comic, and it's perfect. No, it's very her. It is very her. Them. Uh, them, that's true, because uh, Penance, of course, right now is, is both Claudette, yeah. Claudette and Nicole. Yeah, merged. But Husk is ready to stop these two shitty trolls in their tracks. She remembers some other stuff about trolls from her brother's stories of Asgard. She has turned herself to gold. 
Or at least her skin. Uh, or at least her skin. And trolls love gold, like, so, 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 so much. There was an entire X Factor story about it. There was, with alchemy. I love that story. He's a good kid. And Husk decides, Husk has decided she's just going to meet the trolls where they are, and she tells them in her best angry mom voice, Don't touch me. I'll make it go away, and there will be no magic for anybody. So they make a deal. Um, if the trolls go far away from town and don't scare people or eat dogs, she won't tell anyone about them, and, more importantly, she'll give them the discarded gold skin. This... This actually seems so so useful. How have we not gone into this more? Like, what Husk can do by turning her skin into whatever and then just, like, giving it to people or selling it or whatever. She could be rich, or she could come up with, like, rare compounds for scientific research, or she could she could decorate the house very easily, or she could prevent American Red Cross from calling her literally every week by regularly dropping off sheets of skin that are entirely made of platelets. I wish I could do that. I really need to donate platelets again. But seriously, like... This is one of those powers that we just don't explore very much. It's just, oh, Husk is gross, and she can do useful things sometimes. But she could actually do a lot more than that. I think we should explore this. Give Husk her own series. So what fascinates me about Husk's ability is she can change her skin theoretically into anything. It's either natural or human-made materials, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything. How complicated can that get? Can she change her skin into cars, for instance? Well, we've really only seen her turn it into a single substance, but it can be a substance with a lot of textural variation, so I kind of wonder. I kind of wonder if, say, Mr. Sinister could create a chimera between Husk and Forge. Oh, shit. That chimera could totally turn her skin into a car, which is gross, but also awesome, which is to say the powers of most Gen X kids. I, I do. I love how gross Husk's powers are. Like, they're, they're just really icky. She's such a great character. I love Generation X. I'm glad we're seeing more of the characters these days. I love that Sync is currently leading the X-Men in modern continuity. But, uh, you know, we just don't see enough of, like, Husk or Skin or whoever. I guess we saw a lot of Husk in Chuck Austin's run. Specifically, her mom saw a lot of her when she had sex with Angel in the Sky above said mom. Yeah, that was really uncomfortable. Sure was. Like... I, I was not even involved in that scenario by virtue of not being a, fix, a fictional character in that setting, and I was really uncomfortable. Uh-huh. For real. But back to this much more comfortable story. So the two shitty trolls have taken the golden skin and they've left, but we still Out have the back nettles. door to avoid the mob. Out the back door to avoid the mob, but we still have nettles. He's, he's the good one, and he doesn't really know what to do. And I love Jubilee's take on the situation. If you'd asked me ten minutes ago, and you didn't, by the way, I would have said, good night, Nettles, and kicked him right outside. But now I'm thinking, what if a mob was after me, you know? We're all monsters, right? Some of us just smell better than others. Is Jubilee the Louise Belcher of the Marvel Universe? No. Okay, well, that's fine. I, I kind of figured, you know, she's the uh, slightly chaotic uh, child who ends up being very earnest and being the emotional core of every story. But no bunny ears, you're right. Dr. Nemesis is the Louise Belcher of the Marvel Universe. Is he ever as sincere as she is at the end of episodes? Occasionally. Yeah, okay. Anyway, the fix is a simple one. Husk calls the cops. Because she knows the police chief is Chief OTA, who's kind of a buddy of theirs. And also telepathic, well, we'll get to that. 
and OTA just very smoothly convinces the mob there is no monster, which uh, unfortunately involves gaslighting the little girl Hannah by telling her she just imagined the whole thing because she watches too many horror movies while her mom's asleep, which, man, that's going to come up in therapy. All of this is going to come up in therapy. Also, her mom shows up and says Maxie came home while Hannah was, was gone. Which, like, didn't Maxie get eaten, like, very specifically? Okay, so we saw the trolls eating meat, and we mm. saw Maxie's collar all ripped apart. So, uh, maybe, maybe Maxie was just, uh, carrying a bunch of steaks that he stole from the local grocer in a, uh, like, comic strip-style humorous scenario, and, uh, they stole that, and while they were reaching out for the steaks, they grabbed his collar, and, um, they didn't realize what was a steak or what was a collar because they're not very smart and they shoot on all of it. Listen, I do what I can. It's X-Men Unlimited. No, no, I, I feel like that's about as, as good an explanation as we're gonna end up with. My, mine is much, much more cynical, which is that, that mom found the collar, realized that Maxie wasn't coming home, and bought a lookalike dog really fast that she's just, just going to insist is Maxie. Mom, why is Maxie smaller and with slightly different patterning? Maxie got a makeover, sweetheart. Oh, oh, that's nice. That's right. She also has amnesia. Well, it is the Marvel Universe. That's right. You're just lucky we're not Canadian. So, all is well and no one's Canadian. But uh, Nettles does go back to the other trolls. He figures that if they're really stuck on Midgard, asterisk, caption, Earth, they'll need each other. So, man, he Nettles is too good for those two crappy troll brothers of his. Yeah, he should just join Generation X. I agree. But, uh, it's okay, because, you know, while they're fighting over, uh, Husk's golden face that she gave them, uh, Nettles just looks up at the stars and thinks about home, and, uh, and that's the way the story ends. Inconsequential, ridiculous, and very, very charming. Do you think Husk's, like, other skins still, like, have, have pores and produce sebum and stuff? Oh, God, yeah. Like, eventually they just get acne and you'd have to, like, you know, give them retinol or something. Like, how gross are they? Oh, geez. Uh, and I mean, you know, everybody has has body hair. Do they just keep growing body hair? Do they just end up really furry and oily? Just a furry, oily, golden face? Well, I mean, it wouldn't keep growing those things after it was removed from her body. Oh, okay, I guess that's true. So it just stays, uh, well, slightly sticky, apparently. Still gross. Still gross, and, and, you know, there's there's no really graceful way to transition out of that to the next issue we're covering, so let's talk about what's been going on on X-Factor. Uh, right, so a long time ago, Strong Guy, best superhero name ever, that's Guido Carousella, a very large and goofy and strong guy, uh, and Wolfsbane, the young Scottish werewolf Rain Sinclair, and Multiple Man, the self-replicating jokester Jamie Madrox, were all on the government-sponsored mutant team X-Factor. But that was before X-Factor went all Suicide Squad and got a bunch of villains on the team and then disbanded when its leader abruptly exploded at the end of the series. So since then, Strong Guy's been in space, being a bodyguard for intergalactic rock star Lila Shaney. Uh, Wolf Spain has been on European X-Team Excalibur, which also recently disbanded. And Multiple Man has just been sort of puttering around after being presumed dead for a while. 
Meanwhile, Wolfsbane's foster mom and Multiple Man's former boss, Dr. Moira McTaggart, has been working with Beast of the X-Men to try to cure the mostly mutant-targeting legacy virus. And that brings us to X-Men Unlimited number 21, Devil's Haircut. Written by Todd DeSago, penciled by Andy Smith, inked by Andrew Hennessy, colored by Felix Serrano, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Emerson Miranda. Oh yeah, those are the writer and penciler from the Strong Guy Reborn one-shot that we covered. They sure are, and this story is going to be in much the same tone. Yes, yes, it's very silly, but but also kind of kind of earnest. Uh, as far as the title, Devil's Haircut, that's a reference to uh, a song by the musician Beck, uh, which is kind of ambiguous. Like, according to interviews with Beck, it might be about folk music villain Stagger Lee being horrified by 90s ideals and the evils of vanity. Um, or maybe not, because uh, at one point Beck was on Futurama as a head in a jar and was musing about what the hell he was talking about with the lyrics to the song. I think mainly they just wanted a title that referenced demon stuff and hair stuff. We'll get to that. We certainly will. So when we last saw Guido Caracela, he had decided to stay in space with Lila Cheney, but he has not lost his affection for his home planet. And when a fellow crew member stumbles across the broadcast warning of an alien invasion of Earth, Strong Guy wheedles Lila into porting him back home mid-concert. Unfortunately, Lila only has a second to do this, because again, she's in the middle of, co- of the concert. She's just gone off stage briefly between songs. So she drops him at the first place they land, which is Eagle Ridge, West Virginia, with nothing but the clothes on his back. Okay, this is confusing, because X-Factor's base was in Falls Edge, Virginia, not Eagle Ridge, West Virginia. And so I figured it was a joke about Guido not remembering it right, but no, there is in fact, like, a moss-covered X-logoed building here, so... Is this just the writer being confused, or did whoever constructed X-Factor's headquarters also get confused and build one in the wrong location first? I'd like to think the latter, but it's probably actually the former. Huh. Now, uh, fortunately, Guido runs into a Lila Cheney fan and is able to trade his shirt for change to use a payphone. Uh, they had those in the 90s. There are going to be several premises that we will be explaining. One of them are payphones, which you put coins into and which allow you to make a phone call because it's the 90s and you don't have a cell phone. Guess I should just be glad that he was a Lila fan and not a Levi's fan. Uh, nobody else is picking up, but the now topless Guido manages to reach Muir Isle, where his old comrades Wolfsbane and Multiple Man have been hanging out. And of course, all we see is Moira picking up the phone saying, what do you mean is my refrigerator running? And of course, Wolfspin and Multiple Man are like, Guido! Because they know that only he would open a conversation after such a long absence with a stupid, stupid joke. And I love that it's both of them! Remember, Madrox and Wolfsbane are probably Guido's two best friends. He was super tight with both of them. Everybody remembers Guido and Multiple Man, but Guido and Wolfsbane were very, very tight as well. Like, at one point later, he calls Wolfsbane Sugar Pop. They're they're adorable together. I love all three of them. And then in a couple decades, he's going to murder her kid. Uh, yeah, that's, that's less great. Uh, I think they mostly make up eventually. They do, yeah. So they agree to help, and Beast, who happens to be there after leaving the X-Men after X-Men 79 to focus on his research, gets dragged along as a reluctant chauffeur. So, yeah, this group of characters is all former members of X-Teams. It's sort of a, a leftover batch. We had talked about this in the next time, at the end of last episode, as kind of an X-Factor reunion, X-Factor denouement, and it is that, but I think it's also a fun examination of, like, what do you do when you're not in the main books anymore? I guess the answer is weird shit. Well, we learned from the Juggernaut what you do. You go to Rutland, Vermont. Yes, indeed. Because at first, the Midnight Rider detects no alien activity. Beast isn't sure what 
you know, Guido's buddy heard about or what was warning him, but there's there's nothing. But then some something shows up in, in Rutland. As for Rutland, Vermont, you may be familiar with Rutland because Rutland keeps showing up in comics and not just Marvel, DC also. Uh, it is a real-life city, which, uh, sorry for that time we said it was just in comics, it is in fact real, that is famous for an annual Halloween parade that includes people dressing up as superheroes. Like, it's really big. It's run by a guy named Tom Fagan, who founded the whole thing, or it was, he, he has passed away. Uh, he, he often shows up as a character in these comics. And during these parades, you'll often see, like, characters from different universes in the form of costumes of those characters hanging out with each other. This is one of the only times you'll just see you know, Batman or Green Lantern or Captain America or whatever show up in the opposite publisher's comic, and it just keeps happening. And it's fun every goddamn time, especially because there usually is actual supernatural stuff going on. Right, so here's what's going on this time. A disgruntled video store clerk um, and wannabe warlock named Melvin J. Wheels, and I feel like we should pause here and explain video stores, video rental stores, because, again, these are a thing that, that no longer exists for the most part, unless you're very, very lucky and live in, in the right part of Portland, Oregon. And they are, so it, it used to be that there was not streaming. Um, and in those days you would go to a store that was like a library, except you had to pay and you would choose your, your video based on the VHS covers that were lined up. You'd, you'd, you'd look at it and you'd, you'd read the back cover and the summary might or might not be accurate. And Depending on how old you were, you'd have to check the rating, and then you you went and you gave the clerk the empty container, and they found the tape for you back behind the counter, and they, they gave it to you, and you gave them some money, and then you gave them a lot more money in late fees later. Exactly. I actually used to work at a video rental place. It was the easiest job I ever had. I kind of miss it, even though I didn't really make any money. Yeah, so those those have now largely gone the way of the dodo, but... um. And it's perhaps in anticipation of this that disgruntled uh, video clerk and wannabe warlock Melvin J. Wheels has gained possession of an unholy talisman, which will allow him to summon all the forces of hell and assume control over them. And he plans to use this power to disrupt the wet wedding of a woman named Helen, um, on whom he has a crush. Uh, specifically, Helen Back. Like, you know... Hell and back. This is not going to be the last or the worst pun in this story. Oh, no, no, that 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 is yet to come. and it, It's real bad. So is it me or does this villain seem super, super specifically awful? Like, I'm kind of reminded of when Jim Shooter created that Thundersword villain in Secret Wars 2 that was just him essentially creating a mocking caricature of the writer Steve Gerber, the writer of Howard the Duck, who he hated. Like, did Todd DeZago just have a video rental guy that was totally an asshole, and did he write this entire comic about him? I mean, I think he just settled on video rental clerk as an ignominious career for a random middle-aged dude who lives, still lives in his mom's basement, but I guess, I guess he could be a revenge villain, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I was only about 18 when I worked there, but damn it, all work is respectful work. Come on, Todd DeZago. Well, it's, it's not the vit fact that he's a video rental clerk that, that um, damns Melvin, it's, it's that he's horrible. He is very horrible. So, alas, Melvin is too late to stop the wedding, so he settles for the reception, which is held at the appropriately named Donnybrook Country Club. Or at least half of the country club. Right, the other half is devoted to a Halloween party. And this is good by Melvin. He figures the two gatherings can collectively be a sacrificial feast for his soon-to-be demon army. 
Jay, do you remember that time we were in that one Oregon beach town and the local convention center was having a cat fanciers convention and a motorcycle convention at the same time? I would like to believe that that was actually one convention. I did see at least one biker who was enthralled by someone's kittens. Good. Good. Anyway, Melvin sets up in the basement, opens an interdimensional vortex, and starts summoning. And, uh... A kind of great detail here is that Melvin's big arcane sigil is the X-Men logo. Yeah, like the circle with the X in it. I was trying to figure out if that was significant in any way, like if it was some kind of satire, but I don't know. It's just an X logo. It's not commented on. Yep. Yep, it's just there. Meanwhile, on the Midnight Runner, Strong Guy tries out a handful of looks via a Shi'ar wardrobe transmogrifier, finally settling on a snazzy superhero costume after going through a few very specific parodies. Oh yeah, the Shi'ar wardrobe transmogrifier. We saw that back in Uncanny number 157. That was the one where Kitty just kept making herself costumes over and over and over, including a Darth Vader costume. Yes, yes, that was delightful. Um, So who who is... I'm, I recognize two of the costumes he parodies. One is Steel, but specifically the movie version of Steel. And one is Iron Fist. Do you know who the second one is, the kind of jack-o'-lantern-looking costume? It just kind of looks like a jack-o'-lantern. I, I missed it too. Okay, but let's talk about Steel. So Steel was one of the substitute supermen that appeared um, in the Death of Superman story. That story, not many people remember, was written by famous Marvel writer Louise Simonson, who of course wrote a bunch of X-Factor and New Mutants, and famous Marvel artist John Bogdanov, who drew some of those things and a bunch of other stuff. Um, there was a movie where Steel was played by Shaquille O'Neal, famous sports star. Uh, the screenplay was actually written by Simonson and Bogdanov, uh, which is unfortunate because it was um, not good, as I understand. I have not seen it. It was supposed to be a spinoff of Kevin Smith's Superman Lives movie, but that movie never happened, so Steel just became a standalone movie and didn't reference Superman at all, and it was just about a big basketball guy in a metal suit with a hammer. So back to the dining brook, our heroes use the, the Shi'ar costume transmogrifier to get Halloween costumes so that they'll blend in with the crowd, or at least half the crowd. They, uh, they mostly don't think about this, but Rain points it out, and I love the way she stops them from leaving the Midnight Runner. She just says, halt, you men! So, who have we got, you know, in our, our movie monster lineup now? Okay, so Strong Guy is Frankenstein's monster. Multiple Man is a Dracula. Beast is a mummy with way too tight wrappings because Strong Guy is very strong, so he can't talk right. I don't get why Beast couldn't just be, like, Beast. Well, he was an Avenger. People know what he looks like. So it would be plausible for someone to dress up as him as a costume. That's a really good point. And Wolf Spain just wears ripped up clothes in her part wolf form. So first, they crash the reception and are escorted out, because that is not wedding gear. And then they get to the Halloween party, and there's this great two-page spread of them going from scene to scene. On the left side of the page, they're stumbling into the wedding reception with people sort of staring at them. And then below that, Melvin is starting a summoning spell. And on the right side, they show up at the Halloween party, and uh, at the bottom of the page, demons are emerging. And I do want to point out one important thing about the Halloween party, is that apparently this is a very fancy one, because the band Oingo Boingo is playing there. So a drunk Green Lantern, comp or I guess Green Lightbulb, uh, repeatedly compliments Hank, who then heads back to the plane to try to make something that can analyze the widening uh, hell vortex. Guido, meanwhile, stumbles across the cellar door, now decidedly hellish, and concludes that this is clearly where the action is taking place. In 
fact, it is because a bunch of demons are coming out of that pit that Melvin opened up. And Melvin stands triumphant in his flaming X-Men logo and dons his unholy talisman. The hell to pay. The hell to pay. Yeah, it's a, it's a hairpiece that's made of fire. It's the hell to pay. I thought Helen back was as bad as it was going to get. The hell to pay. Like, I, you know, as the saying goes, I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. I, I'm i so angry that I've crossed back over into Entertained. I feel like that's what this comic is going for. Todd DeZago, well done with your fucking hell to pay. Yeah, man, fuck you, but also thanks. And as we know, this is a canonical comic. That is a mystical artifact in the Marvel Universe. Doctor Strange has probably heard of it. Doctor Strange probably has it in a box. That's true. Uh, Jay, did you ever read the run that Jason Aaron wrote and Chris Pacello drew of Doctor Strange that was just, like, super wacky and off-the-wall and gross? Only a bit of it. Oh, well, uh, it didn't have a Hell to Pay in it, but I think that would have fit. Yeah, it should have. I, I, I'd like to see the Hell to Pay make a comeback. All right, Marvel, if you're listening, Hell to Pay, ongoing series. Every issue, somebody wears the Hell to Pay, and we learn about how it impacts their life and helps them learn more about themselves and maybe the true meaning of Christmas. Does it strike you as something that might be, like, sold at Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonders? Oh, I think it would be! Yeah, that and that weird little, like, monkey doll with the symbols that every time it crashes the symbols, something dies. I hate that monkey. That fucking monkey. I bet it's wearing the hell toupee. Probably. Back at the wedding reception, the, the walls are now bleeding, and, um, Melvin emerges in his flaming toupee to claim Helen's hand. It turns out that, that they have no prior relationship, he's just her video rental guy. Outside, Beast has rigged up an ultrasonic cannon with which he plans to, I believe, shoot the vortex, because... Sure, why not? Um, unfortunately, anyone left inside may be sucked into the vortex when it collapses, so Wolfsbane goes to tell Guido and the Jamies to evacuate the building, which they do. Unfortunately, or, well, unfortunately for Melvin, at least, this leaves him with no offering for the demons, who will now need to be sent back to hell before they devour anyone in their path, except Melvin trips, and when he trips, the hell to pay, which he has apparently not adhered to his head, he's just got wearing it, you know, just sitting on there, which is not a good idea with a toupee, from from what I know of toupees and wigs. Like, you want to you make sure it's glued down if you're wearing it for something important, like summoning demons. Um, so it, it flies off, and so no one is controlling the demons. They are just going to devour their way through Earth. Or they would, if Guido weren't a quick thinker and mostly bald. Indeed. So he puts on the toupee and sternly tells them to go back to hell— and I love their half-hearted repartee. Well, what do you think? Well, he is wearing the wig. Right. Let's go. Like, this is just them clocking in for a shift at the factory. The, uh, hell toupee factory, um. So he, strong guy, tosses the toupee into the vortex after them as it closes and Melvin flees. Lila heads back, or shows back up to pick Guido up. Her show is now over. But strong guy wants to see the rest of the gang. Say hi to Alex and Lorna. Oh, no. Yeah, this takes place after the X-Factor final issue, so um, everyone's like, uh, sorry, man, uh, Alex, Alex is dead. They thought he knew, which is why they didn't bring it up. And at that point, he's just teleported right back into space. There is no time for him to process this, for him to talk to his friends, and he just goes back into wacky hijinks, which is kind of tragic and is also kind of a very good, strong guy plot this is a character with such emotional depth 
and in part because he hides his pain under humor, and in part because everyone sees him as just a funny guy, he doesn't really ever just get to be genuine and get to have those feelings. Even the story doesn't give that to him. That's right. What the story does this time is shunt him back to the the colleague who told him about the news of attacking aliens, who tells him a little bit more, which leads Strong Guy to realize that his colleague just caught a broadcast of War of the Worlds. Oh, man. Like all the folks that thought Orson Welles' reading of it way back in the day was a real newscast of an alien invasion. Although, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, War of the Worlds, this would have been on radio waves. And the Arson Galaxy, there's another pun for you, R-S-Y-N, is like way, 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 way further. They shouldn't be there by now. Although I guess Lila does teleport a lot. Maybe the radio waves hitched a ride. Oh, I just assume a lot of bootleg tapes of Earth stuff end up around the galaxy because of Lila. Oh, yeah, that that actually makes a great deal of sense. Like, anything from Earth just seems sort of cool. Yeah, it's, 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 like, it's like a really, really indie venue that doesn't get well promoted, but gets really good acts once in a while. I mean, you probably haven't heard of it. Yes, yes, Earth is the hipster planet. I like this. This is good. What's also good is our listeners, and they've got questions. We didn't determine who was going to be the primary answer. I guess I answered the second one more, so how about you answer the first one more? All right. David asks via email, which X-Man throws the best or wildest Halloween party? For the best, I'm going to say Jubilee. I feel like she knows how to throw a good party. For wildest, I don't think what I'm imagining is what you were aiming for, but I'm going to say magic. Oh, that would be very demonic. That would be quite uh, fitting in with the X-Factor story we just covered. It would be an extremely wild party for a very feral definition of wild. (laughs) I would love to see a party uh, that was run by Cypher and Kitty Pride teaming up. Oh, they're so nerdy, and they get so dedicated to their projects, and they have such a good time together. I think that would be infectious and would be a lot of fun. But I, I, I have trouble imagining that either of them knows how to throw a party. Uh, there would probably be some major flow issues, like they wouldn't know the fact that you need to have the food and the drink in separate parts of the building to keep conversations moving and to keep people mingling. So, yeah, yeah, there might be some problems, that's true. As for Wildest, uh, you're not wrong with magic, but can you imagine a Halloween party run by the main characters of Leah Williams' recent Exterminators miniseries? Uh, you know, Dazzler, Jubilee, Boom Boom, and Laura Kinney, Wolverine. Uh, that would be an amazing party, and I feel like you either would, uh, wake up wearing somebody else's clothing on a pile of laundry, or you wouldn't wake up at all, because I feel like at least one person would probably die at that party. You'd just wake up on the moon. Or you would wake up on the moon. Hopefully the blue area, where there's, like, some oxygen and stuff. No. Oh, well, that wouldn't go very well. So TC emailed to second our fanciful fan casting of Vincent Price's Belasco way back when, and goes on to ask, Are there any other random characters in the X-Books that you always hear as being voiced by anyone in particular? So this is a weird one, but speaking of Laura Kinney as Wolverine, I kind of imagine her voiced by Mae Whitman, somewhere between Whitman's Korra voice from Legend of Korra and Roxy voice from the Scott Pilgrim movie, maybe with a little flatness for her early appearances that are a bit reminiscent of Anne from Arrested Development. Who? Also, uh, Greg Sulkin, who played Chase Stein in the live-action Runaway show that I liked a lot, especially its bonkers last half-season. I kind of imagine him voicing Elixir from the new X-Men. But I realized that may just be because both of those characters are initially beefy blonde dudes who go from being popular jock jerks, 
and they both become sensitive and supportive awesome guys with still present intensely dark sides who make awful decisions that have bad consequences sometimes. I never really realized how similar Chase Stein and Elixir were. What about you, Jay? Uh, Tim Curry voices Mr. Sinister. That's not a suggestion. That's just an inarguable truth. No notes. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear once again from the angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, Marshall Blandon Smith. You and your little friend, Tommy Flick, are getting off really easy this time, because frankly, that hell-to-pay pun is still absorbing most of my ambient ire. I hope you're grateful, because any other day, I would have burned you to ash. Fucking hell-to-pay. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four put aside their differences. On the pages of a shared annual. Okay, I thought you were just disapproving, but you froze. No, no, you were just No, I was just pretending my video froze. (laughs) <laughs> very effectively <laughs> to make okay, clear I just, my that part doesn't need to go yes. <laughs> yeah please skip that <laughs>